few people are able to avoid the inevitable in contemporary industry, and that is the uh, annual employee review. By a show of hands, how many of you experienced such a fate? The annual employee review. Well, perhaps then you can relate to the following story written by a man who barely survived his ordeal. He writes, I work for a big company. I'm small. I'm much smaller than the company. My boss told me so himself. He said, the company is much bigger than you are. I work out of a cell. The company calls it an office, but to me it's a cell. There are no padlocks on the doors except those I see in my mind. I could escape, but to where? Another corporation? That's all there is. I'm a company man. I do everything I'm supposed to do eight hours a day, 12 months a year. I get weekends off for good behavior. I get paid once every week whether I need the money or not. He says, I don't make trouble. I play second base on the company softball team. I attend company picnics and parties and laugh when I'm supposed to. I don't sexually harass female colleagues. It's against company policy. But this is a bad time of year. It's review time. That means I have to go before my boss and have him evaluate me. This goes on, I'm told, all over the country. People like me get reviewed. That's part of being a company man. You know, I'm tired of getting reviewed. <clears throat> all through school I got reviewed. Before I got married, married, my wife reviewed me. She still reviews me. Everybody, even the bus driver, reviews me. I thought when I grew up I could relax and be myself, but no such luck. America was once the land of rugged individualists. Now it's the land of the small corporate man. Would Daniel Boone have stood still for having his boss question his appearance, his cooperativeness, his initiative, his creativity, his productivity, his punctuality? Never. But that was long ago when Daniel Boone was big. People were big. Now people are small. Corporations are big. The man who occupies the cell next to mine is small. The other day he was smaller. He's a good company man. He uses words like interface and input. But the other day, he passed by my office in a daze as if he had been smashed by a demolition ball. That man, I said to myself, just got reviewed. <laughs> and sure enough, he had. He got a fair on appearance and cooperativeness, an average on initiative and productivity. I didn't get one outstanding, he said. He didn't show up today for work. I think he's home crying. I think he's destroyed. Two days ago, I got reviewed. Let's interface, said my boss. My boss is small, but I'm smaller. He's a good man, my boss. I'm also a good man. You're a good man, he said. And he put a check next to good, not outstanding. Well, I said to myself, so I'm not an outstanding man, but who is? But I am punctual. Yes, you are, my boss said. And he put above average for punctuality. But do I comb my hair nicely, wear trim, dark suits, my tie and corporate knot? I don't know, said my boss, mulling me over. You know, your hair is kind of long, your shoes could use shine. I got an average for appearance. That didn't hurt because back in the days when I was a rugged individualist, I used to be downright slovenly. I prided myself in being a slob and slurring my words like Marlon Brando. You know, my boss said, you slur your words like Marlon Brando. <laughs> so I got a poor in speech. All right, but despite these drawbacks, these flaws of character, I do get along with people. He said, you know, you don't get along with people, do you, my boss said. That was a slap in the face. Who don't I get along with, I asked. You're a loner. Oh, I am. Yes, I am a loner. So I got a poor in cooperativeness. It was downhill from there. I didn't get one outstanding, not for initiative, none for creativity, not for productivity. Funny, I used to think I was creative and productive. I used to even think of myself as cooperative and attractive. All I am, it turns out, is punctual. I didn't show up for work yesterday. I was at home. Should I go on living? My wife says yes. She thinks I'm at least average. She thinks I ought to go back to work and tell him off my boss. You know, I can't do that, of course, and that's no way to get even. What I can do tomorrow is review my secretary. I'm small, but she's smaller than me. <laughs> you know, as I read that, I thought, you know, what's the point? You know, and the point is very simple, and that is that none of us are above being reviewed or evaluated for our performance in various areas of life. Therefore, it becomes highly critical that we understand the standard by which we will be measured. You know, in our study, ongoing study of 1 Timothy, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me in 1 Timothy. We come to a passage of Scripture where Paul tells Timothy of the standard God uses to evaluate pastors. 
You know, it's an interesting subject because, as anyone knows who has attended church for a period of time, it's inevitable that you'll have a tendency to evaluate your pastor. And quite often, pastors are evaluated on the basis of the wrong criteria. Their effectiveness is frequently gauged by the size of their church, the building program, their popularity or charisma, you know, the, uh, their media exposure, how many books they've written, or whether or not they're on television, or other very subjective criterion, such as seen in the following story. Three boys are in a schoolyard, and they're bragging and arguing about their fathers. The first boy says, you know, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem, and they give him 50 bucks. The second boy says, man, that's nothing. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song, and they give him $100. And the third boy, not to be outdone, said this, you know, my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon. It takes eight guys to collect all the money. So there you go. How should pastors be evaluated? I want you to consider this thought by Puritan John Owen. He says this, <clears throat> a pastor or minister may fill his pews, his communion rolls, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. The true criteria by which a pastor must be evaluated are found in the New Testament. Specifically, as we look in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, Paul will describe for us seven qualities of a good pastor. Seven qualities of a good pastor. A very fair, reasonable, objective measurement of whether a man of God is truly everything that God requires him to be in the position that he's in. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 6, we read these words. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. What are the seven qualities identified for us in this section of scripture? Well, first and foremost, Paul reminds Timothy that all pastors, as well as, by the way, all of God's people, are to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. All pastors, as well as all God's people, are to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that in verse 6 he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The word good can be translated as noble, admirable, or excellent. As a pastor, Timothy was to be excellent and useful to the cause of Christ. You see, it's not about personal goals or personal agendas, but about uh, furthering the kingdom of God. All pastors are to be excellent or useful for the purposes of God. That's why they're in the position that they're in, that they're set apart and, and they're sanctified. The word sanctified is just a big word that basically means to be set apart for God's purposes. All of God's people are set apart for God's purposes, uh, to, to be useful to the kingdom of God. Having just discussed the inevitability of false teachers, Paul reminds Timothy that a genuine teacher or pastor will have God's will at the heart of his ministry. Uh, there will be, unlike the false teachers, no selfish motivations. And in fact, Paul pointed those out very specifically. And often through his ministry, he was questioned as to what were his true motives behind everything that he did. And it's important to realize that he lays this out for Timothy, the overseer of the church in Ephesus, to teach to those pastors who are under his care that, you know what, our motives are so important as to what we are all about and whether we'll be useful for the purposes of God and the kingdom of God. And so there was always a question about motives, and motives are very important. And so what he is saying is never forget the fact that as a foundation of ministry, as a foundation for all believers, we are to have a servant's heart. 
We're never to be put in a position of authority or power so we can abuse it in any way, but to use that authority and that position of power to further the kingdom of God. And in fact, it was very clear throughout the ministry of our Lord and also the disciples, if you go back to Matthew chapter 20, you know, the ongoing argument continually was who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And to that question, Jesus had a very simple answer. In Matthew chapter 20, <clears throat> starting with verse 17. Notice the conflict that takes place here between God's will and the will of men because he says as Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, Matthew 20, verse 17, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up. Remember, as he told that, Peter, having heard that, said, Lord, we'll never let that happen to you. And at that time, he was rebuked by Jesus very clearly and said, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the interests of God in mind. You have your own selfish agenda. It became the interest of man and not it of God. And in this passage, he explains what those interests were. It says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him and said, bowing down, making a request of Jesus, and said, he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the, ten, with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, in the world that we live in, man wants to be promoted to a position of authority or power so that he will be bigger than those whom he will evaluate that will be smaller than him. And so we go, you know what, I'm small, but you know what, thank God my secretary is smaller than me. See, there, there's always that attitude or mentality that, you know, I want to be in this position so I can tell other people what to do. But he's making a very clear point. He said, look, Jesus said, look at my own life as an example. God in human flesh, in the appearance of man, in the likeness of man, laid aside that which he said, you know, and not wanting to be equal to, to God, but laid aside that and took on the appearance of man, brokenness, the, the humility of a bondservant. He said, don't forget that I have come to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. You know, the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, for the world has been condemned already. Jesus came with one purpose in mind, and that is to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, the example that he gave us is very simple. He said, you know what, don't confuse yourself and think that once I'm in a position of power, I can use that power for my own personal agenda and my own personal uh, reasons and motivations. He says, no, no, that's not it at all. If God elevates any of us to a position of any kind of influence or power, we're to use it to serve him and further the kingdom of God and to serve those whom God has entrusted to us. And how much more important is that uh, for a pastor? You know, the seven qualities of a good pastor, it starts with a servant heart. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, and it's interesting because here's Peter, who through the inspiration, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about the same subject in 1 Peter chapter 5. You know, it's interesting, and if anything, if you know anything at all about Peter prior to God doing a work in his life, he was a man who liked to be first and a man who liked to have that position of authority and that position of power. You know, he was a man who spoke up and, you know, he was probably one of those typical, you know, type A personalities, man. He was just like, it's just the way it is. And yet here he is writing in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, inspired by the Spirit of God, he writes, Therefore I exhort the elders, remember in our study in Timothy, elders, pastors is a word that's used interchangeably, I exhort the elders or pastors among you as your fellow elder or pastor and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed. 
He said, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. There goes motive again. But, he says, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Once again, he says, hey, listen, you know what? Make sure that you recognize your true motive for what you do. Don't lord it over others as the Gentiles do. Shepherd the flock of God. You know, to, to, to use that position as a position of influence in such a way that you become examples to the flock. You know, not lording it over those alerted to your charge. And in fact, you know, the Bible is very, very clear often to rebuke and point out publicly those who would violate such principles. And in first, uh, third John, if you turn a couple of books ahead, you'll see that, you know, John calls out publicly a fellow by the name of Diotrephes. And in third, the third letter that John writes in verse 9, he says, I wrote something to the church. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. Neither does he himself receive the brethren. And he forbids those who desire to do so. And he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes was a man who was called out publicly as a man who was an unservant. He, was, he did not have a servant's heart. He still had the same problem that the disciples had as Jesus tried to teach him a lesson about humility and leadership. Here was a guy that wanted to be first among them. He didn't listen to what others had to say, specifically the authority of the word of God, the apostle at that particular time. We wrote to him and he said, hey, I don't want to listen to anybody because, you know what, I don't have to because I, I'm, my own, you know, I'm God in my own little kingdom. And the reality of it was is that he was called out and rebuked publicly and said, hey, wait a minute, don't be like him. In fact, he says, beloved, do not, in verse 11, imitate what is evil, but what is good. And so the lesson for all of us is very simple. Don't imitate what is evil. Well, what is evil? The attitude that was demonstrated by Diotrephes. The attitude that was demonstrated by the disciples back in Matthew 20. And that is when we're in a position of power or influence, let us always remember that we are to be servants of God to make sure that we are in a position of authority and we can be useful or excellent for the purposes of God and his kingdom. You know, as Paul was continually questioned about his motives, he made it very clear to others that his motives were the motives that were pure before God. He said, I, I'm compelled to preach the gospel. I'm compelled to pe preach Christ and him crucified. You can question my motives all, of you, all that you want, but in Acts chapter 20, if you remember the passage, he said, listen, you remember how I was with you night and day, working with my own hands so as not to be a burden to any of you. I would get up in the morning and I would work with my hands. I would go in the afternoon while everybody else was taking a siesta and I would teach you the truth of God's word. And when we were done with that time, I would go back and I would work again. And then at evenings, I would teach again so as not to be a burden to anybody and more importantly so as not to be confused with the false teachers whose motivation was basically to fleece the flock their motivation was to make a buck off of whatever it was that they were teaching and he said listen you know though I could have as an apostle exercised my authority upon you I chose not to do so so that there was no confusion as to my motives I came to preach Christ and him crucified because I am compelled to do so for he has changed my life. He is alive. I saw him alive. I claimed he was dead. I persecuted those who claimed he was alive. And you know what? My bad. I saw him. I'm born again. Old things have passed away. All things become new. You know, you want to question my motives, that's fine. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through a long list of everything that he endured for the sake of Christ. And basically was saying to them, okay, let me ask you something. Would you go through all that for a couple of bucks? I mean, are you kidding me? And not only that, he didn't even take any money from anybody. So what's my motive? And that's really the question. What's my motive for doing what God has called me to do other than to share the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? and to warn you of the judgment of God, which leads us to the second thing back in 1 Timothy. A good pastor is not only a servant, but a good pastor also, like all good shepherd, must be a protector of his flock. A protector of his flock, playing off of the word picture that we have and being a good shepherd. 
Paul then encourages, exhorts Timothy, like all good shepherds, to be a protector of the flock. The question is this, how, how, how are pastors of good usefulness to the Lord and to the kingdom of God? Well, one way that they are of good usefulness to the Lord and the kingdom of God is to be a protector of the flock by pointing out the dangers of error and false teaching. Notice the phrase back in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The question that we ask is, well, what were the things that he pointed out? Well, the last time we were together last week, we noticed in verses uh, 1 through 5, he pointed out the danger of apostasy, the danger of being led astray, <clears throat> the danger of taking, moving from one place to another. ...and the danger of being led astray by false teachers. He called it like it was. He didn't hesitate. He called out Hymenaeus and Alexander as examples, as Diotrephes was, of false teachers. The things that they're teaching are wrong. The direction they're having you go is wrong. It is in contradiction to the expressed will of God... ...as we see in the written word of God and the truth of God. And basically he's saying all pastors are to be a protector of the flock... ...and that those pa all good pastors point out error or deception... Don't believe that because that's a lie. You know, the danger of false teachers, and he named them by name. The danger of being misled by false teachers. Uh, the dangers or the strategy of the devil or demons. The doctrine of demons or the strategy of the devil. As we talked about last week, you know, we have an enemy, Satan, the adversary. Uh, he, he wants to destroy the people of God. And he has schemes or strategies, specific schemes or strategies. If you recall the last time that we were together, we talked about the fact that the pattern is the same throughout human history. God speaks, man hears, Satan enters the picture. He calls into question the reliability and trustworthiness of the word of God. He says, don't believe God, believe me. Man believes the lie, he sins before God, and then there's consequences of it. The pattern is always the same, it'll always be the same. Any good pastor is to teach those things to his flock, to protect them from falling into into such a trap. The devil wants to call into question the reliability and trustworthiness of the word of God. He has done so from the beginning. He is a liar. He is a murderer. Jesus said it himself. And we have got to prepare and protect and to warn those of that truth. So that you don't fall into that trap. I don't fall into that trap. It breaks my heart every time I see one of God's people fall into sin and say, oh, how'd that happen? It happened because there was a pattern that has been there throughout human history. You didn't take time to learn nor understand the pattern. You didn't recognize the danger as you began to go down that road. Or nonetheless, you just chose to be disobedient and you knew the pattern, but you said, well, you know what? I'm going to believe the lie. I'll trust Satan. I won't trust God. He says it won't be as bad as God says it'll be and we'll all find out. How foolish we are to not trust God. God loves us. God sent his son to die for us. Satan has never done anything for anybody other than destroy their life. And yet he will continue to call into question the trustworthiness and reliability of God. And what breaks my heart is, and we still fall for it even today. The strategy of the devil, the strategy of the enemy, you know, as a protector of the flock, to point out doctrines of demons and just that, you know, that they're wrong, that they're lies from the pit of hell, to call out publicly such heresy. Uh, case in point, as we said last time, notice in verse 3, he called out a couple examples. You know, what's interesting as we look at these, just to kind of review that, is that this is typical of satanic deception because both of these teachings contain an element of truth. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, he quoted scripture, but he didn't quote it in the proper context, and then he stopped short of finishing what the passage said. So he would take a verse and quote, he would even quote scripture to the Lord, and yet he would stop short of what that verse or what the rest of the passage entailed. You know, that's exactly a typical strategy of the devil. Take a part of God's truth and then twist it and manipulate it. Give you an example. Paul calls out publicly men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So he took two examples in his day and said, listen, you know what, those who are men who forbid marriage, you know what, there's nothing wrong with singleness. 
In fact, the truth in, in 1 Corinthians 7, I had a gentleman come up to me later and said, you know, it, it sounded like it was wrong to be single. And I want to correct that because in the context in which I shared, it was, it's not wrong to be single. I'll make it very clear that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul wrote and said, hey, listen, if you're single, it's good for you to be single as I am at this point in my life because then you won't be distracted by family cares or concerns and you can devote 100% of your time, energy, and effort to the kingdom of God and to do what God calls you to do. It's not a bad thing to be single. For those who are gifted of celibacy, you know, that's a good thing. Now, that's the truth of God's word. But in context, what they were teaching was this, that you are more spiritual by abstaining from that which God created as good as if somehow or another you can work your way or earn your way to a higher level of spiritual acceptance by God. So it came down to it's a matter of, you know, the only way that you'll be pleasing to God is that you have to give up certain things. He talked about abstaining certain foods. Listen, you know what the Bible teaches that it's good to fast and pray. But the Bible never, teach, never teaches anywhere that fasting and praying is what makes a sinner right before God. Fasting and praying won't turn a sinner into a saint any more than remaining single will turn a sinner into a saint. The only thing that turns a sinner into a saint is repentance and belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection. The only, the only means or method by which man can be reconciled with God is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by God's grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us could boast. See, the purpose of a pastor in this particular case, a quality of a good pastor, is to protect his flock from those type of errors that would be introduced to the church and confuse the doctrine of salvation. We preach Christ and him crucified because there is no other way and no other name given to men by which man can be saved. You can't go to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't give up enough things in your life to somehow or another make up for the sin that you and I are guilty of before God. The only remedy for sin is the death of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross on our behalf and the power of his resurrection, period. End of gospel, that's the good news. We've got to be very clear in that. Because the deception comes in seeing those things as essential for salvation. And that is the hallmark of all false religions. That man can somehow do something other than repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be made right before God. See, a good pastor must, notice what it says, in pointing out these things, these lies to the brethren. And notice it's to the brethren, it's to God's people. You know, the purpose of the church is to be a place where God's people gather together to worship God in a variety of ways, to be instructed in the truths of God's word so that we can then go out from here and serve one another in the kingdom of God and to share or evangelize, to share the good news of the gospel with those God brings into our life. The purpose of the church was never to be a place where lost people come, but is to be a place where saved people come to be built up in the faith. And uh, yet at the same time, you know, obviously we, we welcome anyone who's not sure of their relationship with God, is not sure what it takes to get to heaven, is not sure of any of these things. We welcome anyone to come at any time. And certainly I was one of those people at a time who was invited to a church. But the reality of the church is very simple. is a place where God is worshipped and praised by his people who have tasted the kindness and the goodness of God and respond in like, and that we would be instructed in the word of God so we can go out and make a difference in the the world that we live in. When the church becomes a place where it is, it is to serve the lost person, and that is the lowest common denominator, and we try to reach that one person at the expense of everybody else, we've defeated the whole purpose of coming together as God's people. And so we're to be a protector of, uh, of the people and warn the brethren of false teaching. And notice it's never ending. It's a continual battle. Believers are not to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 14. He is to remind them that the way to deal with satanic teaching is to be strong in the word of God. 
all God's people must be strong in the word of God so that we know truth and that way we can immediately recognize that which is a lie from the pit of hell. One man writes of the importance of such protection when he writes these words. The failure to think biblically and theologically has cost the church dearly. It has allowed the infiltration of all sorts of error. That in turn has led to the churches becoming confused and weak. Convictionless preaching consisted of watered down teaching, platitudes and weak theology has replaced doctrinally sound expositional preaching. The resulting legacy has been one of charismatic confusion, psychological encroachment, mysticism, even psychic and occult influence. Much of that chaos can be attributed directly to the failure of pastors to think critically and preach with conviction. So many pastors have failed to draw the line clearly between truth and error and build their people up in the rich and sound doctrine of God's word. Such weak preachers are often said to compensate by having what some call a pastor's heart. A pastor's heart, however, is not measured by how good a man is at petting sheep, but by how well he protects them from wolves and feeds them so they grow to be mature and strong. To Timothy, Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away, and that's the word apostasy. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship to the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry, fulfill your calling before God. Preach the word in season and out of season. You know, be patient, be gentle, but at the same time, you know what? That is your calling, fulfill it to the very last day of your life here on earth. A good pastor is one who develops and preaches strong convictions. He continually warns his people of error as the need arises. You know, and he preaches the full counsel of God so that it's a balanced and it's not a negative. You know, there's something about always warning people about danger and danger and danger that, you know, it's such a negative thing that people eventually turn it off. But, you know, when you preach the full counsel of God, you're, you're teaching truth and encouraging people to live a life that's worthy of their calling, but you also warn them of the danger at the same time. And so there's a balance there, so it's just not all negative. There's some positive instruction as well, but at the same time, it's important to warn of that which is negative. We don't want to dwell on the negative, but at the same time, you know, there's a, there's a reality that goes there. You know, he is a protector of his flock. The reason that I give illustrations of people that I personally know, or even times in my own life when I've been disobedient to God, is that I want to warn people of the danger of, of believing the lie and not trusting God. You know, the, the names are changed, but the stories are the same over and over and over again. You know, it's like, been there, done that, heard that. There's very few things that I hear anymore after 20-some years of being in this position that are new or surprising to me. You know, it's just a different face, a different name, same problem, same pattern, same sin, same consequence, you know, you know same place, same time, same thing, you know, go to Wendy's, whatever. But, but, but the reality of it is, is that, you know, it, there, there, is that, there, there is that truth of the matter that, you know what, we need to recognize that God is good and the devil ain't. That God is trustworthy and the devil's not. That from the very beginning, as you read through scripture, there's a pattern that's very clear and it goes like this. If you do what is right before God, he will bless you. If you do what is wrong before God, he will curse you. Do what is right and experience Good things do what is wrong and experience bad things. It doesn't get any simpler than that. And I don't care how young you are, I don't care how old you are, duh, it comes down to that. Do what's right before God and you're blessed. Do what's wrong and you're cursed. Don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. Duh. Man, you think that was like the hardest thing to grasp. That's just truth. But sometimes... We can't handle the truth. Number three, 
It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Going back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and that's this. In order to be able to warn the flock of falsehood and lies and deception, one must know the truth. So a pastor must be committed to be a student of the Word of God. This is one of those no-brainers. A good pastor loves the Word of God and is a serious student of the Word. Notice he says, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, the Christian faith, and of the sound doctrine, the doctrine that we see taught in Scripture, which you have been following. You know, the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, has a positive bottom line, profitable for teaching what is right, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Teaching what is right, telling people where they're wrong, telling them how to get right, and then how to stay right. That's what the whole purpose of the Word of God is. Tell us what is right, tell us what is wrong, if we're wrong, how to get right, and once we're right, how to stay right. And so that's the purpose of the Word of God and the quality of a good teacher. Constantly nourished. Notice that. It's a never-ending, continual process. Can't say, I went to seminary 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, I got my degree, and that was the end of the process. No, that's not it at all. It is a continual process of being nourished upon the Word of God. You can't get enough of it. You can't wait to share the nourishment that's found in the Word. Personally, I can't wait to get here on Sunday morning. I mean, when God teaches you truth and you realize how the truth sets people free from the lies of Satan, his grasp in their life, and the grip that he has on them, that death hold that he has, when you realize how God's word sets people free from that, you can't wait to run out and tell everybody, and hopefully some will listen and be freed from, from, from that grip of death that is on their life. I can't wait to get here. Well, I got chapel this afternoon at the stadium. I can't wait to get there either. It's, you know, you just can't wait to share those truths because when God teaches you truth, you can't wait to share that truth with others. And as you live out that truth and you see how true the word of God is and what the results are for doing what's right before God, man, you can't wait to share that with people. I mean, think about it. I can, you know, I love to share with people, hey, listen, you know what? If you think you can work your way to heaven, you're going to be frustrated the rest of your life. There is no hope because the best day that you have going for you, you know there's more good things you can do. And it's frustrating, isn't it? Yes, it is. Hey, you know what? Don't even go there because it ain't getting you where you want to go. Turn from sin and turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ. God provided everything that we need to be right with God. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Stop working your way to heaven because you ain't going to get there. That's the devil telling you you can work your way to heaven and get to heaven. And at the end of the day, if you continue to try to do that, you end up in hell and you say, how would I get here? Because you believe the lie. Believe the truth of the word of God. Look at those who have been born again from up above by the will of God and not the, the will of man. And look at their life and see the difference. Old things have passed away. All things become new. And look at their life and examine it and say, hey, you know what? There's something different about your life. I want what you have. What is it? It's not what it is. It's who I know. And I've come to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. Man, and what a great opportunity that is to, to free people from the lie, that grip of the devil who wants to destroy people. You know, I can't wait. One pastor writes uh, of this quality of being a student to the Word. He says it's basic to excellence in ministry. But it's sadly lacking in the church today. Much contemporary preaching is weak and produces weak churches because it reflects a lack of biblical knowledge and a minimal commitment to the study of Scripture. For many pastors, study is an unwelcome intrusion in their schedule. It interrupts the routine of administrative tasks and meetings with which they occupy themselves. They study only enough to make a sermon, not to feed their own hearts and think deeply and carefully on divine truth. The result is impotent sermons that fall on hard hearts and have little impact. Personally, I can't think of a better place to spend time than alone with the Lord and in His Word. It's a haven. It's a place of rest. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of peace. Every time I'm alone in my study and, and, and with the Lord and the Word of God, it reminds me of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Saying, there's nothing better than that. There's no better place to be. The song that we sung, in the garden, there's joys we share as we tarry there that none other have ever known. I mean, can you imagine what a privilege it is to know our Savior and, and to spend time with Him? And the rest of the world that's lost and in darkness, they don't even know how to, how, how to have communication with God and we can spend intimate personal time with our Savior the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want I mean you know I, I mean there's no better place to be 
and as a protector of the flock, I will warn you today that our enemy tries to convince us that there's a lot of better places to be. In front of the TV, in a movie theater, at a sporting event, at the beach, in the desert, on a golf course, at Nordstrom's. You know, there's a lot of better places to be than alone with your Savior. And yet, there's no better place to be. And the joys we share as we tarry there, none other have ever known. For those pastors who would rather be doing other things, I was reminded of the following story. A preacher went out visiting an elderly woman of his congregation, and as he sat on the couch, he noticed a large bowl of peanuts on the coffee table. He said, you mind if I have a few peanuts, he said. And she said, oh, no, not at all, the woman replied. They sat and chatted for about an hour, and the preacher starts to leave. He realized that by this point he had eaten not only a handful of peanuts, but he emptied the whole bowl. He said, I'm very sorry for eating all your peanuts. I really meant to eat only a few. He said, well, let me give you some money so you can buy some more. And the old woman looked at him and said, oh, never mind, Pastor. Ever since I lost my teeth, all I can do is suck the chocolate off of them anyway. And the joys we share as we tarry there. You know, seriously, there's nothing wrong with pastors visiting the members of their congregation. There's nothing wrong with pastors doing other things. But such activities should never become an excuse for time not spent in the Word of God. Just can't. William Tyndale, <clears throat> excuse me, William Tyndale, the 16th century English reformer and Bible translator, was an example of a man with a burning desire to study and understand the Word of God. In prison, shortly before he was martyred, he wrote a letter to the governor-in-chief asking for a warmer cap, a candle, a piece of cloth to patch my leggings, but above all, I beseech and entreat your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may spend time with that in study. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in his last days, this side of eternity, and he knew he was about to be martyred, and he still asked for the parchments, the Word of God, so that he would have time to spend in studying the Word of God. You know, I, you know, I, I, I see these things and, and I challenge you as I am challenged myself. Can we not find time to spend in the Word of God that God has so graciously given to all of us that we have access to, that we can have that intimacy with God that Mary enjoyed as she sat at his feet? to be a student of the Word of God. All good pastors have one thing that you'll notice above everything else. Not only do they love their Lord, but man, they can't get enough of His Word to spend time in the Word of God. Timothy was also, if you notice in 1 Timothy chapter 4 again, says, on, on the uh, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. Timothy is a great example of a man who was raised in a godly Christian home and environment and had been taught the truths of the word of God. Train up your children and the way they should go and when they're old, they won't depart from it. What Paul was saying, what your mother and your grandmother taught you, the truths of God's word, hey, you know what? Keep on keeping on because that is it in a nutshell. There is no other nourishment outside of the word of God for men, by which men of God and women can grow in their faith. He's saying that, hey, just as you continued as a child to grow up in these truths and the sound doctrine, then you know what? Continue as an adult as well because the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it never changes. A good past pastor is continually a student of the scriptures. He cannot give out what he does not take in. A fourth quality, which kind of goes hand in hand with this, is that he's also a rejecter of the nonsense of false teaching. Notice it says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. He says, hey, you know what? Just, you don't even spend any time on this nonsense. You know, we only got so much time. We're told to redeem the time wisely for the days are evil. There's only so much time. And if I have the choice between studying God's truth or studying that which somebody else believes that's a lie from the pit of hell, I don't really have much interest in studying that which is a lie. 
I'll study that which is true so that when somebody shares with me something that's a lie, I can immediately tell them why it's a lie because I know the truth. I don't need to study lies and falsehood to get a better understanding of that. In fact, if anything, it just confuses people. Bottom line is this, study the truth of God's word and when somebody who is in, you know, involved in, in any kind of, uh, of a cult or other doctrine or religion or any, any sort that's a lie before God, when they share you, with you what they believe, you'll say, no, that's not true because here's what it says in the word of God. <clears throat> so he doesn't have any time for it. Now, so that there's an explanation here when he talks about, you know, that, that's fit for old women. The bottom line of that is in the culture, Paul recognized and understood women were not educated. They were not to be educated. They were not involved in higher learning. And so when he says that those things are fit for old women, basically what he was saying was this. You know what? That as women were not educated in the same process by which men were, there would not even be any consideration for what somebody would believe who was not educated. So he goes, you know what? That's just nonsense that fits over in that category with people that sit around and talk about things and they don't even know what they're talking about. <clears throat> How many of you ever sat around, maybe at a family function, and listened to quite, quite a bit of ignorance shared around a table? <laughs> Pass the turkey, the gravy, and some more ignorance. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, they just talk about things that they don't have any clue what they're talking about. All God's saying is that, you know what, don't, don't waste time talking about stuff like that. Talk about truth. Because only truth will set you free. You know? It, it always cracks me up. You know, we got still relatives and family, you know, in different parts of the country, and it's like the only thing I want to talk about was, hey, how's the weather out there? Who cares? How's the weather back there? Okay, then they come out here, and then they're looking at the weather back there, and then they look at the weather here. As you know, it's a hotter back there. Then go back there. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, who, who cares? You know, it's almost like you want to say, you know, it's really hot in hell. <laughs> Let's talk about that. All right. Five. Five. Discipline. A good pastor is disciplined. Notice what he says. On the other hand, <clears throat> discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, and that is a trustworthy statement. And what he's saying is this. There is no effective spiritual ministry apart from personal godliness, since ministry is the overflow of a godly life. J. Oswald Sander, in one of the best books I ever read about spiritual leadership, writes this. Spiritual ends can be achieved only by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. It's as simple as it gets. The word discipline is a word from which we get our English words gymnasium and gymnastics. It means to train or to exercise. The word speaks of a rigorous, strenuous, self-sacrificing training that an athlete undergoes. How many in here have a membership to a gym or a club or train in some similar setting for the purpose of staying in good physical condition? Not many, and I can tell. And uh, so... <clears throat> or they're not sure. It's like, you know, it's like typical thing. I don't know. Am I raising? Am I volunteering for something? Do I got to do something here? It's like, you know, hey, well, all you have to do is every time I drive by a gymnasium, 24-hour fitness, LA fitness, whatever the different ones are, and you see people coming and going, and all the time that they spend for the purpose of training themselves for bodily discipline, hey, you know what? Notice, he's not saying that's a waste of time because there is a benefit to that. All that he's saying is in comparison to the amount of time that you put in staying in shape physically, don't you think you ought to spend at least the same amount of time in, 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 in pursuing spiritual godliness? And so here's my challenge for you today. Think about this. And, well, wait, let's think this through for a second. I, here's my challenge to myself. If, if I run, and, and I'll, sh I'll share it out loud. You know, if I run four times or, or four times a week, and if I run for 45 minutes each time that I run or 40 minutes each time that I run, or you look at it and you go four or five times a week, you know, four or five hours a week. Doesn't it make sense that I would at least spend four or five hours a week to somehow or another, as it says here, to pursue godliness for the purpose, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, since it holds promise for not only the present life, but also the life to come? I mean, doesn't it just make sense to you that if you're going to spend that much time worrying about your physical condition... Okay, for those who don't exercise, think about it and how long it takes you to put on your makeup. Um, or, well, men or women. Uh, so it's like, 
you know, it just gets so hard sometimes with you people to come up with, you know, some practical illustrations. But yet you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. Hey, can you spend as much time on something that has eternal significance as we do on that which is temporal? That's all. <laughs> Number six, a good pastor is also industrious. And what I mean by that, if you notice in verse 10, it says, For it is for this we labor and strive. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. This ministry of excellence is, only, is not only a heavenly pursuit demanding divine power, but it's also an earthly task demanding hard work. You know, the word that's used here where it talks about if we labor, the word labor means to work to the point of weariness and exhaustion. To strive means to engage in a struggle. You know, God, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there's two reasons that we should all be striving or, or, or working ourselves to that degree, especially pastors, because number one, all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not for the purpose of giving account for sin in our life, because that had been taken away from us at the cross. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done that was useful to the kingdom of God. How we use the gift or gifts God has given us for the purpose of being useful for God's kingdom. Do you realize that you will stand and give an account to the Lord one day for the gift or gifts that he's given you to see whether you have been useful for God's purposes? And you will give an answer for that. That's why we're to redeem the time wisely because the days are evil. That's why God says it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Whether it's the judgment of unbelievers because unbelievers will face God's eternal judgment before the great white throne of Christ. But the bottom line is all believers will be judged for our works that we, do, we have done subsequent to faith in Christ. It's not works that save us, but it's our works that demonstrate that we have been truly saved. Faith without works is dead. One of the litmus tests of genuine Christianity is that we are being useful for the purposes of the kingdom of God. I am always concerned when people claim to have been born again and yet there is no evidence in their life of any useful service towards God or his kingdom. They're busy making money, they're busy getting an education, they're busy pursuing their own goals, they're busy you know, buying this and that, and they're busy doing all these earthly temporal things, and there is no indication or evidence whatsoever of their usefulness for God or for his kingdom. There's a flag there, and as a protector of the flock, I raise this flag and I warn you that, you know what, examine yourself to make sure you are genuinely in the faith. Because you can be deceived and lied to and told that you are a child of God when you are as lost as you were when you came into this world. Hard work. A good pastor is certainly not lazy. If anything, there's a danger of being burned out for doing too much. And that's why you got to take a step back every now and then and say, okay, wait, i got to regroup. You know, J. Oswald Sanders again wrote, if he is unwilling to pay the price of fatigue for his leadership, it will always be mediocre. True leadership always exacts a heavy toll on the whole man. And the more effective the leadership is, the higher the price to be paid. Richard Baxter, a godly 17th century English Puritan, wrote this, The ministerial work must be carried on diligently and laboriously, industrious, as, as being of such unspeakable consequence to ourselves and others. We are seeking to uphold the world, to save it from the curse of God, to perfect the creation, to attain the ends of Christ's death, to save ourselves and others from damnation, to overcome the devil, demolish his kingdom, to set up the kingdom of Christ, and to attain and help others to the kingdom of glory. And are these works to be done with a careless mind or a lazy hand? Oh, see then that this work is to be done with all of your might. Study hard, for the well is deep, and our brains are shallow. Think about the mission. Think about our purpose. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Our responsibility as those who have come to faith in Christ is, is to, we've been entrusted with the truth of God's word, a ministry of reconciliation. Our job for God is to go into the world and reconcile God to man by teaching them the truths of sin and judgment and warning them of hell and the wrath of God so that they would flee from that wrath and they would repent and turn from wrath and turn to God and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. I mean, that is the battle in which God has entrusted us to be his soldiers. How can we be lazy in such a, a campaign? 
I hear all the time about how relentless we are in fighting, you know, the terrorists around the world, these Al-Qaeda, these camps that are all over the place. We will, we, will, we will hunt them down. We will search them out, and we will destroy them. We will not get lazy in the process because it is a never-ending campaign, and so is the pursuit of lost men for the kingdom of God. And lastly, a good pastor is authoritative in his teaching. In verse 11, he says, prescribe and teach these things. Prescribe and teach these things. Paul's command to Timothy contrasts sharply with much contemporary preaching. Preaching in our day is often intriguing, but seldom commanding. It is often entertaining, but it's seldom convincing. It is often popular, but seldom powerful. It's often interesting, but less often transforming. And what Paul is telling Timothy is this, prescribe these things. And any doctor knows that that means that's a command. Timothy is to command that which he has been commanded to teach to them. Prescribe. A prescription is basically one, two things. Number one, it is a command from a doctor for a pharmacist to release the medication by which he is prescribing, commanded, give them this drug. It is a command to the patient to take that drug as directed. See, powerful, authoritative preaching is one that says, listen, you don't have a choice. This is not an option. This is not something you can do if you want to do or if you like to do. You do it because it is right before God. And you know what? We live in a day and age where people don't want to be told what to do. You know, because so, then, so you know, the pulpit becomes a place of, well, we've got to be really careful what we say because we don't want to insult anybody. You know, we never know who's going to be here for the first time and we don't want to offend anybody. Hey, come here, you'll be offended every week. <laughs> because, frankly, I don't care what you think as much as I care what God thinks. I don't care whether you like me or not. My greatest concern is whether I am obedient to God. I don't care whether the truth bothers you because I know the truth of God's word will set you free from that which has ensnared you. It's just a question of whether you will be obedient to God and turn from sin and turn to God. See, authoritative preaching prescribed these things all throughout scripture. You know what? Jesus didn't mince words either. You know, the first message that Jesus preached in his ministry was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The command to all men everywhere, according to Acts chapter 17, is that all men repent of sin and turn to God. Turn or burn. You know, we use the philosophy when we go to the beach in the summer. May we use the same philosophy as we share with friends and neighbors and people we work with. Turn or burn. Turn from sin or burn in hell. That is your choice. And that is a command of God. It's not an option. He's not saying, well, you know, if you turn from sin, maybe that'll work out for you. You know, or if you don't want to do that, then I'll give you option number two. And that is, you know, as long as you give so much money to a church, or if you read, you know, the Bible, or this book, or that book, or if you're a good person, you know, whatever that means. You know what? God doesn't give men choices. His only choice he gives to man is this. Obey my word or disobey. Obey, I will bless you. Disobey, and you will be cursed. That's the only choice God gives to man. We make up the rest of the choices. There's none of them that are there. So you have a choice. Obey God or pay the price. Jesus paid the price for you. Believe that and you shall be saved. Or believe you can pay your own price and you will for all of eternity separated from God in hell. It's your choice, but man, I'm thinking that's a no-brainer choice to me. I mean, choose wisely because the choice that you make will be a choice that has eternal ramifications. A good pastor teaches with authority. I like what Richard Baxter writes these words. He says, you know what? The, the, the responsibility of pastor is to screw the truth into men's minds. I like that. Yeah, I was like, we helped our daughter and son-in-law move yesterday, and we were putting together beds and stuff, and I was thinking about that screwing that, you know, bed together. It's like, you know, just kind of going like, you know, I just... And, and, you know, sometimes they're a little more stubborn than other times. Other times you just kind of go, and it's in. But some of you people I've known a long time... And all I'm saying is, man, you got to get out the big old drill motor. You know, 
So anyway, that's it. There you have it. Seven qualities of a good pastor. Number one, he has a servant's heart. Number two, he protects his flock by teaching truth so that they can know error. Number three, he's a student of the Word of God. Loves the Word of God, can't get enough. Anytime you're together and you talk about it, man, can't, take, can't wait to talk about some new truth that he learned in the Word of God. He is a rejecter of the nonsense of false teaching. I don't have time for it because all I want to do is spend time in the truth. He's disciplined for the purpose of godliness. You know, not that we can't be disciplined physically, but man, be disciplined more so spiritually because it has benefits in this life and in the life to come. He's industrious. He's a hard worker. He's not lazy at all in, in, in his responsibilities. And he preaches with authority. It's not an option. Seven qualities of good pastor. Seven qualities that are fair, reasonable, and right in evaluating any ministry. And in closing, I want to say this. Never judge others by your own subjective standard, for we often can be wrong. Use only the objective standard of the Word of God when evaluating your own life and the life of others. Nothing more and nothing less. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for the truth of your word that sets us free. God, and more importantly, we thank you for the love, this compelling love that you had for all of us. And yet, while we were sinners, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to die upon the cross, to seek and to save that which was lost. In a moment of time, in Adam's rebellion and sin against you, all of mankind fell into corruption. God, you tell us that you loved us so much that you gave us your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It is your command that men everywhere repent and turn from sin and turn to God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. In his death on the cross on our behalf and the power of his resurrection, demonstrating that he is who he claimed to be, the living God in human flesh, who appeared in the likeness of a man, obedient to the death, point of death and even death on the cross. And therefore, you've highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God and all God's people said, Amen.